be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Um, if I could get, hey, here we go, John. Thanks a lot. Perfect. I just want to say something about Operation Christmas Child before I start. Um, that was a great video. Um, that kid's got talent, doesn't he? Uh, I just want to say something about the other end, uh, because we worked for many years in Central America in Nicaragua, and uh, we had a church planting school there, and probably about 75 church planters have gone through that school and now starting churches all over Nicaragua. And many, many of those churches, church plants in the, that are out in the villages, uh, receive those shoeboxes. And uh, so I've had the opportunity to actually be on a, on a Sunday uh, when they receive those boxes and the church distributes those to the children. And uh, one of the things that really impacted me was the church planting pastor said, this is probably the only, this is, is the only Christmas gift that these children will receive. And uh, so, yeah, thank you. From the other end, I say thank you to you um, for the ways that uh, you're just sharing Christ's love and pray for creative ways uh, for those boxes to be received and the people actually giving them uh, might use that as opportunities to, uh, of course, speak the, the, the gospel into the life of uh, these children. So this is special because it's probably... So I asked Pastor Glenn, he called me this week, of course, and said, uh, hey, our staff is quarantined, uh, would you be able to speak Sunday? And he, uh, I said, well, you know, what would you like me to speak about? And uh, he said, you know, whatever you'd like to do on Sunday. So, cats away, the mice can play, all right? <laughs> so, I mean, he's given me free, he, a he actually texted me back when I said that, and he said, ha, ha, ha. But, <laughs> but the funny thing, in the text, you don't know if that's like, <laughs> or ha, 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 you know, yeah, so I don't know, I'm just going to interpret it however I want. Um, I am, I'm going to be a little different this morning uh, because we're making a big change in our life. We are your missionaries, Mark and Diane Hensler, and we're part of the resource team of CMED, that's Central Eastern Europe, and the Mediterranean. And we've been moving around in that area. We are church planning coaches, and we're involved in leadership training in creative access countries, meaning countries that you can't get a visa as a missionary to go into these countries, but you need to find creative ways. And uh, we've been praying a long time about that and pretend I'm doing that. There we go. <laughs> And so we've got some great news to tell you. Two weeks ago, uh, we accepted the invitation uh, to be the senior pastor of the Heliopolis International Church in Cairo, Egypt. So before the end of the year, we will be moving to Cairo, Egypt. This is an international church, runs maybe, we have to use pre-COVID statistics, right? So before COVID, they were running about 130 to 150 people. But what excites me is that in that group there, they said on any given Sunday, there are between uh, 20 and 30 different nationalities. So I'm excited that we're reaching the world through workers that have come to this church. And these are people who are working with the majority religion there. 
And so we're there as to encourage them, and we will, we will be exploring ways that Diane and I can both uh, be teaching there. Um, yeah, so this is a map of the greater Middle East, all right? You hit the next one, and you'll see that we are right in the center of the greater Middle East, in the largest city of the Middle East. And so we're, we're pretty uh, excited about that. And it's been quite a long journey for us to get there. So Heritage Baptist Church, you now have a satellite ministry in the center of the Middle East. Are you excited about that? I am. I'm very excited about that. All right. Um, Maybe you wonder, uh, you know, why, why do the Henslers move around so much? I'm preparing a prayer letter that I hope will get out this week, and I said to my, one of our supporters, actually my mother-in-law, but one of our supporters, I said, what, uh, well, what do you think I ought to say in this letter as I explain what we're doing next? And she said, explain why you move around so much. And uh, so maybe you think like we're you know, the character in Martin Hanford's book, Where's Waldo, right? Where's Waldo? Where's Mark Hensler? Well, I want to tell you the story of, uh, of you know, how, how we've come to this place in our life and then talk a little bit about some biblical precedent for that. But how did we end up in a Muslim country? Well, <clears throat> just about 20 years ago, in just a couple of months, about New Year's now, we come to New Year's, it'll be exactly two years ago, that we moved into these apartments, we were on furlough, we came up to Florida from Chile, and uh, we stayed in this place because it's furnished and you can get monthly rentals, and uh, that's where our story starts. I came into the apartment building one day with my wife and our two children, who were Suzanne and Andrew, elementary school at that time. The elevator door opened, there were three very serious-looking men on the elevator, and across the other side of the elevator, obviously with them, were three Muslim women in full burqas, black burqas that, you know, you just look and see the slit out of their eyes. And uh, when I saw them, I had two immediate thoughts. My first thought was, don't get in there. <laughs> and my second thought is, what are you talking about? You're not a racist, get in there. And so with my kids in tow, we got onto the elevator, the steel door shut, and immediately I regretted my decision. I looked at those men, looked them in the eye and said, hi, nodded my head. Now, I, you know, I travel all the world and I find that generally give a very, people give a very positive response when you go hi. You know, and even if you don't know the language, you kind of not, they're living in here, so they, I know they've been in the United States and they know how to say hi. And they were stone cold. They didn't move. They just stared at me. And I thought, wow, that was really strange. A few weeks ago, a few weeks later, my wife came up from the basement where the laundry room was, and she said, Wow, you know those Muslim women? She said, I tried to engage with them down in the laundry room. Now it's just women only in the laundry room with the kids. And so Diane, she, you know, if you know Diane, you know she's outgoing, she's a people person, she can make friends anywhere. She, she came up and said, wow, those women did not want to engage with me at all. Sorry, we kind of jumped ahead of my story there, but um, <clears throat> we left Florida. 
We came up here. We're actually staying here in Clark Summit when this happened. You know what this is, right? The Twin Towers, 9-11. And with shock, we all... In fact, I remember that I was over there on Evans Street. And I'm checking the news in the morning. I was actually on the page for the Chilean news services. I saw the picture and I thought, oh, they're making another horror movie, right? The Towering Inferno or something. And I'm reading this story and I said, this doesn't sound like they're making a movie. And we were all just in shock. Well, a few days later, of course, President Bush tells us that uh, the leader of this group was Mohammed Atta, and he talked about Al-Qaeda, and nobody had ever heard of Al-Qaeda before, and Mohammed Atta. This was all new to us. This was coming out of the blue. And several days later, as we're watching the news, I see this picture. This is our apartment building, 10,001, North Atlantic, West Atlantic Avenue, Coral Springs, Florida. So, I was in the elevator with Muhammad Atta. I had my little kids in there with three terrorists who killed nearly 40,000 people in Washington, D.C., New York City, and right here in Pennsylvania. That was uh, quite a shocker to me. That was my very first experience being face-to-face with Muslim people. Now, as we began to read, uh, we found out they actually weren't very good. I'm going to go back just one to one. I'll try to signal you, okay, to, to advance. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to tell you that that impacted me greatly. To think that those guys would have taken a box cutter to me if I hadn't blown their cover, right? I'm, just because I'm an American. So every time I would see after that uh, Muslim people, <clears throat> yeah, my stomach got in a knot. And uh, over the progressive years, I noticed because we travel, we'd see people in the airport. When I would see a man walk in the airport and uh, six feet behind him, because she's not worthy to walk along his side, six feet behind him, this woman completely cloaked, following on his heels. That bothered me. I didn't like that. And uh, if I was sitting in the, in the terminal, you know, waiting to get on the plane, and I saw a Muslim man, I, I, I hope he doesn't get on the plane with me. That's what I'm thinking, right? And over about a period of about 10 years, I noticed something. Um, I didn't like Muslims. <laughs> and, and here I am, a missionary, right? I, I'm not a racist, you know? I love all God's people. Well, except them, right? But when, I wouldn't have vocalized that. I wouldn't have articulated that. But I noticed that something was growing inside of me and thankfully I was able to catch myself up short and realize that if I didn't stop this. I was going to have a, a real hatred, right, for a great, large percentage of the world's population. And I stopped, and I prayed, and I asked God, God, would you just change my heart? Give me a heart of compassion for uh, Muslim people. Give me a heart that, that, that cares about them that tries to understand the deception that they are in. And Lord, 
I added this addendum to my prayer. If there's any way that I can do something to work with Muslim background people, I am willing to do that. Now, I thought I was safe in just adding that little footnote to my prayer because I worked in Nicaragua. And there weren't, you know, I never saw Muslim people there. And being in Latin America, I thought, well, I'll just, just so the Lord knows what a good boy I am, I'll say I'm willing to work with Muslim background people. And I didn't think anything would develop with that. Well, God took us then to Greece, and uh, many of you know, and I've shown these, some of these pictures here before, about the refugee crisis situation, war in Syria, and the oppressive regimes in Afghanistan and Iran are bringing people by the thousands into Europe through the gateway of uh, Greece. Many, many of them are coming to Christ. This is great. They're coming to Christ, and they're growing in Christ. They're being discipled. People are reaching out to them. Christians in Europe are reaching them. And it came to a point in our work there in Greece that I was approached to ask to help start a school for some of these men who were growing in Christ and it felt like we need to take them another level beyond discipleship, begin training them with the Bible issue so that they can be uh, Bible teachers for their own people. And so I began to teach at the Discipleship Training Center, uh, got to see my notes written up in Farsi, a language I didn't even understand. And it was just a powerful, powerful um, experience for me to, to probably some of the most joyful moments I've ever had in ministry is working with uh, these refugee people, Muslim background people. I mentioned, I think, last time I was here, every semester I would ask my students from Iran and Afghanistan, how many of you have known Jesus for more than two years? Never has a student raised their hand and said, I've been a Christian for more than two years. So two years prior, they were Muslims. We go out and we distribute Bibles in the su summer, and so exciting. This man from Iran, this man from Afghanistan, this man from Sudan, and I'm surrounded by them. This is the guy that said, I don't like those people. And these are my beloved brothers now. And uh, so God has taken me on this journey, um, which has been very powerful for me. And uh, just to let you know, we missionaries have to grow too. We have a lot of learning to do also. And uh, so through this prayer, uh, God is now leading us to actually live in the Middle East and see how that we can help uh, our workers there in these, in these countries. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. People all over the world are looking for relationships a family that they feel they can belong to, a bigger family they feel they can belong to, a sense of acceptance and worth in the community, a way to meet their deep spiritual longings, and a belief system that will answer life's greatest questions. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? And what happens to me after I die? There's nothing sinister in the fact that people have these needs. And they seek answers to these needs. And many, many, many people are deceived with the answers that they get. And I learned to have compassion. Compassion on these people. So I, uh, 
I want to give you a little story from scriptures also that kind of explains why we travel around so much, right? Uh, I think longevity in one place, I think longevity in the ministry is powerful. You have the greatest impact uh, as pastors, as missionaries, when you can stay a long time in the same place. I really do. I'm just not doing that myself. Uh, God has taken us down a different path. And I think as we look at the early church, we see a lot of patterns of that. Uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, over and over again, we see travelers. But I, I want to talk to you this morning about one couple in particular that over the last couple of years, Diane and I have begun to really identify with. And I want to just kind of tell you their story this morning. You know, it's funny, the camera's right in front of the clock, so boom, I'm good here. Um, this is a map of the, the sort of the, the Mediterranean world, roughly what would be um, the Roman Empire, except we got Spain and Gaul and a little bit of Britannia up there that are off the map. But this is the map of the New Testament world. And if you have your Bibles, if you're on your couch, grab your Bible, grab your phone. Uh, I'll let you look this up. Acts uh, chapter 18. And this chapter talks uh, a lot about a very special couple who were kind of a background couple in the New Testament story. And yet, for me, they're powerful models. Now, uh, Acts 18, 1 through 3, uh, if, especially if you're, if you're not a geography nut, could sound very boring, all right? Are you, you know, are you, are you maybe like me when you first read texts of Scripture that have a lot of names or a lot of places or a lot of dates, like start to, your eyes start to glaze over, right? Uh, this, is, this is one of those texts that has a lot of geography. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, or Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed and worked, uh, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, you probably notice there's a lot of geography in that text. There's, if I can circle them, we talk about, he talks about, Luke is writing this, talks about Athens, he talks about Corinth, talks about Pontus, talks about Italy, he talks about Rome. And you've heard of most, if not all of those places, right? Yeah. Encourage me. Yeah, go like that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You've heard of most or all these places, of all these places, but to put them together and see where the move is going is a little bit tricky, isn't it? So let's go back to our map. And uh, this is Paul. He's, he's do, on his second missionary journey. He's come out of Antioch of Syria. He's been ministering in Asia Minor. Today we call this Turkey. And then he has this Macedonian vision because he wants to continue to go in another direction. God says, no, go over to Europe. He goes over to Europe and uh, he makes it to Philippi, Thessaloniki, Berea, and uh, gets to Athens. He doesn't spend a lot of time in Athens. And why not? Because Athens is not an important city in the Roman Empire. They had had their glory 300 years earlier when the Greeks were ruling uh, the known the Western world. 
And so he wants to get to Corinth because that is an important city. It's in a city that's on both sides of the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. If you're traveling from Rome, you can make that shortcut across there. It's, it's a great thing to do. So that city was a, a rebuilt. It had been a Greek city, destroyed by the Romans, rebuilt by the Romans, and they put a lot of colonists uh, particularly military men in there, and it was just a completely international, thriving, dynamic city, and that's where Paul wanted to get there. And he especially wanted to meet a couple there. It says they were from Pontus. That's on the Black Sea in what we call today Turkey. Now, fun fact, Pontus, uh, our son married a Greek Cypriot girl, and her family, they live in Cyprus here, but in the great exchange of, of Greeks and Turks uh, in the 19th century, uh, her family, my daughter-in-law's family, moved from Pontus to uh, Cyprus. So it's a fun fact for me, may not be fun for you. Anyway, they leave Pontus and they go to Rome, the text says, and from Rome they go to Corinth and that's where Paul meets them. All right? Why did they leave Pontus? We don't know. But we know that they were businessmen. They had the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers. They would be leather workers. And, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I used to think, but tent makers, like, how, how often do I sleep in a tent? Maybe two weeks out of the summer, right? They used awnings everywhere, over the theaters, over the streets, over the shops. And then in, in Corinth, they had the Pan-Ithmian Games every two years. And so they were going to need a lot of shade. It's hot, it's sunny, it rains, you need lots of shade. So the greatest way to get shade is with these canopies. And boom, Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, they had work, plenty of work to do uh, there. So I'll advance the next slide. If you jump down to verses 18 and 19 we will see some more geographical terms. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. The names are reversed this time. At Cancrea, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. You say, Brother Mark, what's that all about? We don't know. There's no explanation of that. He was a good Jew. He was trained as a rabbi, and he had taken a vow, and nobody needed to know why, right? Something between him and the Lord, signaling the end of his vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Another text, easy to get lost, easy for your eyes to start to glaze over because of the mention of the different places. So they... Uh, Aquila and Priscilla have left Pontus, Asia Minor, Turkey, have gone to Italy, Rome. Now they've come to Corinth in the Peloponnesus Peninsula of Greece, and they're headed for Syria. Why Syria? Well, Antioch of Syria was one of the largest cities in the Roman city, one of the top four cities in the Roman Empire, along with Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. And it's also, remember, where the church was that sent out the first missionaries in Acts chapter 13. When the believers had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution, they went up here to Syria. So it's important in the church, in church life, Syria. So they're all excited about going to Syria, but what happens is they stop on the way in Ephesus. And as they're there in Ephesus, Paul says to 
Aquila and Priscilla, hey guys, would you consider just staying right here? Would you consider coming to Ephesus and helping build the church here? And that's exactly what they did, and they had an important role there as they were coaches uh, to uh, Apollos there. Apollos who came, and he knew a lot. He was, he was a vibrant testimony. You know, he was outspoken in, in his gospel witness. But there was a few things that he didn't know. He, he only knew the, gospel, uh, the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla were able to coach him uh, along, help him to grow in his faith so that he could become a very powerful preacher of the gospel. Um, I'm just going to just list these verses. If you want to jot them down, this is your, your homework for this afternoon, all right? Guys, during halftime in the football game, maybe you could just kind of do this. So I got Acts 18, which we looked at, Romans 16, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 2 Timothy 4, 19. Um, so you're just welcome to kind of look those over and see what you can learn about um, Aquila and Priscilla. In fact, in fact, if you participate in a small group, and I hope you do, uh, Paul has asked, asked me for some suggestions. And so this is actually what you're going to be studying in your small group questions. And so you'll have a head start and you'll be, the one, you'll be that kid in class that raises his hand first, right? I know the answer, I know the answer if you study these texts, all right? So that'll be kind of fun. I want to just kind of finish up this morning with, um, okay, what is, what is all this business about Aquila and Priscilla have to do with us today? I think we can learn from them. Well, number one, I hope you captured that sometimes God has his workers moving around a lot. We just have to move around a lot. And these were big moves in those days. This was from one end to the other, practically, of the Roman Empire. And they moved for different reasons. If I can reverse back uh, to the map. Uh, there, yeah. Why did they leave Pontus? They're from Pontus. Um, Asia Minor, on the Black Sea. We don't know. We don't even know if they were believers then. They could have been believers then because the Apostle Peter preached there. And there was a group from Pontus that went to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Remember when 3,000 believed? Luke says there's a group from Pontus there. So we don't know how they came to know the gospel. They go to Rome, maybe, maybe just for business reasons. It's a great place to make money, right? Go to Rome, make lots of money. Perhaps, I don't know. But while they're in Rome, the emperor Claudius is fed up with the Jews and these Jewish Christians because Suetonius, an ancient historian, says that uh, the followers of Crestus, he calls them, followers of Crestus, scholars believe that's Christ, were just causing so much problems there in Rome, <laughs> So the emperor says, leave. Now, you know, pack your bags. Uh, it was a big adversity. It was a huge adversity. Uh, Diane and I had a little taste of that in, when we were working in Greece because uh, we didn't get our visa renewed. We thought we were going to get renewed. We were down at the police station getting renewed, and they said no, and that meant we had 24 hours to leave the country. Uh, but we didn't have to move in 24 hours. So Quill and Priscilla know what adversity is. They know what, what it means like when God just shakes your basket and up, upsets your whole plans. All of us here today understand what it means to have our 
the basket of our life shaken now in 2020, right? These are people who fundamentally understood what it meant. They lost their business. They lost their business contacts. They lost whatever they had. They just had to pick up and leave. They go to Corinth because I mentioned Corinth is it's an exciting, it's a dynamic city, and, it, and there's a lots of needs for tents and awnings so they can get a job there. Somehow their testimony was bold enough that when Paul went there, he found out about them, connected with them, and now uh, for the gospel's sake, they travel. So I don't know if you're catching that picture here. The first move may be for business they move. The second move, because they're kicked out, the emperor kicks them out of Rome. And the third move they do for the gospel's sake. So different reason each time, and it actually is not limited to this. They're actually moving back and forth to Rome uh, at least another time after that. Um, we can go ahead now to the Roman slide. There we go. Romans 16, 3 through 5, and I just want to land on this verse. Paul is finishing up this letter that he's uh, writing to the people in Rome. So now they're back in Rome again, right? Which wasn't even on the map. Greet Priscilla, Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now I want to kind of just walk through this phrase by phrase and see what we can learn here. First of all, it says, greet Prissa and Aquila. Prissa, the names are reversed now. She's first and he's second. Prissa is the name. Priscilla is sort of the nickname of, of Prissa, all right? That's why that difference is there. Greet Prissa and Aquila. Aquila, always mentioned together. Every time, I think it's six times in the New Testament, they're always together as a couple. I love that. I love that. If you, I mean, Diane's taking care of the babies right now, but normally, if you see Mark, you see Diane. If you see Diane, you see Mark. We work together in the ministry, and I just love that about our relationship. This is a couple that was able to do that, and there are many, many of you couples that can do that, working together, serving Christ together. And uh, they were in the church in Ephesus with Paul, and I just kind of wonder, okay, this is, this is non-canonical thought here. <laughs> I just kind of wonder, maybe Paul had them in mind when he was writing Ephesians 5 and talking about that model uh, relationship that a couple has. You submit to one another. The men provide the headship, the women submit to the headship, and they raise their, they raise their children in the nurture and admon admonition of the Lord. Hey, Priscilla and Aquila would have been a great role model for that text in Ephesians chapter 5. And then he says, my fellow workers, they were not only committed to each other, they were committed to partnerships and friendships. They were committed to other people. In fact, Paul just, you know, he's just overwhelmed by the commitment they have uh, to relationships and to people. And then it says, <clears throat> in, in Christ Jesus, that's their highest commitment. They are reflecting the fundamental command of all the New Testaments. What is the greatest law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, 
and your might. The tent-making business was not their life. Ministry wasn't even their life. Their life was Jesus Christ. They risked their necks, it says. They risked their necks for my life. I don't know. We don't know how that happened. That's not developed anywhere. Somehow, when Paul was in danger of his life, they stepped in to defend him. So their commitment to Christ led them to be committed to the followers of Christ. And, Paul says, and not only am I grateful for them, to them in an amazingly profound way, but in fact, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to them. Wow, what an impact. Multiple churches are thankful. As they travel around, everywhere they went, they were a blessing to the people they were with. When our kids were very, very small and they'd go visit somebody, stay at somebody's house or whatever, I'd always say as they walked out of the door, be a blessing. Be a blessing to whoever you are with. And uh, so these people were tremendous. They were committed to the global church. They became willing to move around wherever God would send them to help encourage the church. And then it says, finally, and greet also the church in their house. So they, were, they had enough means to uh, own a house and own a house big enough to host a church in it. They were married, a married couple, so that means they were not slaves. They were freed people. So they, they, as they traveled in their business, they probably had some, had some wealth, and they used their resources for the local church. They were businessmen who gave their time and their resources to build the local church. That's a tremendous advance example, right? From a couple who are committed to each other, committed to Christ, and then committed to the church. And so Diane and I kind of take that as a role model for ourselves. We would aspire to that. I'm not comparing ourselves to that. I'm just saying that's what we would aspire to, you, for, for, to do. <clears throat> so my question to you this morning is, what are you committed to? What could you say, this is what I'm really committed to. Um, but really, what are you committed to is, 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 is a secondary question, because the real question is, who are you committed to? <laughs> Until you're passionately committed to Jesus Christ, you'll never know freedom from fear and doubt. I'm bringing this back to 2020, right? When Aquila and Priscilla were forced out of Rome, certainly they were afraid. You know they were afraid. You, what are we going to do? We just got kicked out and whatever we can grab and we're out of here. And life suddenly was very different. It took a 180 degree spin. And over and over again, as they traveled around, they would lose their friendships. They'd lose business connections that they had, their, their source, where they buy their, their materials from, their, their, how they sell their stuff. They lose that every time and they travel. They lose their workshop. They lose their business contacts. And certainly, they must have been worried when they traveled around all those t places that today we call Turkey and Italy and Greece and Syria. Worry and fear reveal where your trust is. We never read about them doubting or fearing. They're always moving ahead, serving the Lord. Well, that's, that's a great role model for me. I kind of just have to land back on one of the earliest verses that I ever learned from memory. And uh, I know we got some Moana workers here, right? 
And so you, you have the kids memorizing this verse. Great, solid, a beautiful verse for 2020. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. I just, in Latin America, we say, I want to gift you this verse. <laughs> like, they say it like I'm giving you a gift. So I want to gift you this verse this morning. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. By the way, that's a command. <laughs> so we don't have to be victims of our fear and victims of our doubt. Trust the Lord with your fears and you can go where He wants you to go and face what He wants you to face. Father in heaven, I thank you for your kindness and your mercies and your great love and your compassion to us. And we know you work in so many different ways with all of us. We're not the same. You haven't called us to do the same. Some people need to stay rock solid right where they are, digging in and building and encouraging the church of Jesus Christ and reaching out to their community. And Lord, some of us, you got moving around quite a bit. Help us to be obedient and satisfied and content with whatever you've called us to do. I want to pray for your church this morning. I want to pray for Glenn and Jane as they're in their recuperation along with Paul and Diane. Uh, I know this is a greatly debilitating virus. So give them strength. Renew their strength inward and outward. Uh, to enjoy life and each other and you. I pray for others who are sick in this congregation. Uh, give them good recuperative powers. If you'd be pleased, Lord, to protect us, the rest of us who've not have been affected by this disease, we just ask that you do that, Lord, and we will thank you for that. I thank you for others in, in our staff here, for Scott and Haley and and uh, she hung and Rachel, the administrative staff here, the extended staff, teachers here. Um, yeah, we just pray for them. And we ask, Father, that we would be people this week who would trust you and put our confidence in you in a time when sort of the rug has just been pulled out from under us with a health situation, a political situation that we never dreamed would be like this a year ago. But we are settled on the rock, Jesus Christ. You do not move. You are rock solid, and we thank you for that. We thank you that when our faith is in you, we can have a confidence that rises above every fear, every doubt, every anger that's produced in our hearts and our soul. Help us to walk victoriously in Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. In his beautiful name we pray, amen.